hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR Global Podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today, uh, as is sort of usual on this podcast, by Rory Taylor, who is sort of TLDR Global's de facto lead writer. Hello. Is that a demotion? Have I just no, de facto you? I like, I like you? de facto because it implies I've kind of taken it and, <laughs> you know, unofficially. You've but, staged a coup yeah. on TLDR Global. Yeah. Um, anyway, in this video, uh, because it's the first one of this year um, and we ended the last one, which was the end of 2023, uh, talking about some of the sort of broader three themes of 2023, the underreported themes. We're just going to look at basically try, each of us is going to take one thing that we think is worth keeping an eye on going into 2024. But before we get into that, the main bit of the podcast, um, we are going to do, as is custom, our underreported stories. So, Rory, what is your underreported story for so, this week? So, mine um, is actually kind of comes off the back of a video I wrote for the Global Channel that is probably out by the time this comes out. A bit lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's about the, uh, the drought in Panama that's affecting the operation of the Panama Canal. Um, I think this is interesting because obviously there's been a lot of attention on the Red Sea and you know the Suez Canal, um, you know, at one end of it and, and that kind of very important shipping route. Um, been a lot of attention on that, but there's not been much attention on the Panama Canal, which for the last year or so, uh, the watershed of the Panama Canal has been in a really serious drought. I think it's the second driest year it's ever had uh, on record, um, which means water levels in the lake that feeds the Panama, well, makes up part of the Panama Canal and feeds the canal, um, have really dropped to quite like dangerous levels. So the authority that runs the canal have restricted the number of daily crossings of the canal. They've uh, imposed new restrictions on the weight limit of ships. And I think they're also charging more for ships to actually pass through. So, you know, this might seem like a very localized thing, but the impact on global trade and the global economy, I think is gonna be really significant because effectively less goods going through that route, possibly more goods going right around the southern tip of South America to avoid- That's the alternative, isn't it? Yeah, that is the alternative, um, which uh, kind of alongside the crisis in the Red Sea will massively push up shipping costs, which will probably be passed down to consumer. Um, so we kind of feel like we're coming off the back of this period of high inflation, but there might be a little push up again because of these uh, disruptions to global trade. Yeah, it is, it's quite a precarious reminder yeah. of how much like we all rely on what feel like very distant yeah. things. Yeah. You know, like we rely on the Suez Canal, which is wild. I mean, it feels so 20th century it really does, to talk yeah. in those terms. Um, yeah, I, 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 think that's, I think that's a great story. I'm looking forward to the video that you're doing, which is on all of the global yeah. trade choke points, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's a really, I mean, it's a really, the hot topic sounds like you're trivialising it, but it is a hot topic at the moment. Um, I think both because, you, as you mentioned, you've got disruption in the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, um, but also because this disruption in the way that, especially in the Suez Canal, the Americans have reacted to it, is a reminder that actually just so much international trade relies on basically the US to guarantee yeah. freedom of, of movement, essentially, freedom of sort of maritime trade through certain routes. Um, and again, that feels sort of very sort of 20th century, it yeah. al- almost sort of 19th century. It feels a bit like Pax Britannica. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great story. Um, my unreported story this time is something that happened on January the 1st, so it's a, it's a bit late to it, but I've been wanting to talk about it for a while. And that is that this new global minimum corporate tax rate that has been sort of developed and organized by the OECD came into force in the UK, uh, the EU, and a couple of other developed economies, not the US, um, conspicuously. Um, and I think this is really interesting. It, in and of itself, it's not that important. Like, it will 
increased tax revenues, but actually mainly for places like the Netherlands and Lux and Ireland and Luxembourg, which are sort of like developed tax havens. Yeah. Um, but I think that so much of national domestic politics has been constrained by the fact that governments just can't tax as effectively as they used to because not just corporations, but also individuals can always threaten to just leave and not pay tax in that jurisdiction. And I think that distorts so much of our politics. You know, we have all these recurring debates about austerity and how to pay for things. And just it's treated as a fact that actually governments can't really tax rich things effectively. Um, and that means that whenever people go like, well, the obvious solution to strain public finances to tax rich people, which feels like the obvious solution and historically would have been the obvious solution, um, it's sort of walled off by this assumption that, oh, actually, rich corporations and rich yeah. individuals will They'll just go somewhere else. Yeah, get, set up shop somewhere else. Um, and I think that's, it's just really constrained, like, your political options. Um, and I think that it's, it's probably a good thing for, like, the health of, of domestic politics in, in basically every country that's struggling with Australian public finances, that we're finally sort of uh, cooperating to create a more effective international tax regime. Um, you know, I just think like the most fundamentally, the two, the two fundamental things that states can do are tax and spend. And the fact that like over the past, really since the 70s, the fact that the ability of a state to tax has just been massively undermined by globalization is the sort of thing that we all accepted as like a sort of, it's a fact of the world, yeah. but it's just a massive political change. Um, and if once you start seeing politics in those terms, you, you see how much it interacts with all of these difficult political questions. So stuff like net zero, for example, yeah. looks like, uh, ice, it looks just like about environmental policies and like green politics and a classic left-right thing. And it is in a sense, but it also is one of the most obvious solutions would obviously be tax rich people, not just because obviously that feels like fairer, especially given that levels of, sort of income and wealth inequality are higher than they have been historically, um, but also because in general, rich people and corporations create more CO2. So it just seems like such a classic policy, like such a classic solution to that issue. Um, but it's walled off by this assumption that basically states can't effect effectively tax rich people and rich corporations. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that's really interesting. And I think that like the reemergence of tax as like a political point of interest, yeah. an issue, I think is, is both a good thing and interesting. Um, anyway, so that is anything you want to add, no? No, no thank very you. good, very <laughs> comprehensive rundown. <laughs> That takes us on to the main bit of the podcast. Uh, and again, we're just going to do something that each of us think is worth keeping an eye on going into 2024. What is your thing to keep an eye on? Big question yeah. in 2024. Yeah, There's a lot of pressure. Mine is a very broad and quite a big <laughs> subject. Um, it's climate change and global warming. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to claim to be the first person to say that we should <laughs> keep an eye on it. But um, I think this year is, uh, is going to be a massive year um so last year 2023 was the hottest on record um and there's a you know good chance that 2024 could beat that record um part of it is uh because we're in an el nino year or few years which is this natural weather pattern but when it kind of combines with the um human induced uh global global warming um you know it kind of creates this quite a you don't believe that do you <laughs> <laughs> sorry go on yeah that's a joke um uh, yeah, it create you know creates even hotter conditions globally. Yeah. Um, I think the reason why this year is a particularly uh, crucial one is because effectively every year, every coming year is going to be more and more important um, in how we kind of tackle climate change and global warming. Um, but I think there's a few different areas uh, that it kind of impacts that I think are particularly important. Um, the first one is obviously just um, 
the increased likelihood and severity of extreme weather events. Um, and we've seen these already last year. We had the, that massive um, storm that hit Libya that caused thousands and thousands of deaths. And there's also a tropical cyclone that hit South, uh, I think, southeastern Africa. We've got flooding, you know, flooding in the UK, flooding in the US, droughts and heat waves all over the place. Um, so that's kind of the most obvious one. But I think what is more interesting, what is kind of less talked about is the impact it has, the kind of downstream impact of these things. So firstly, the impact on fueling and driving conflicts, yeah. in particular, the Sahel region in Africa. Um, we've talked a lot about, we've done lots of videos on coups and conflicts in that region. Um, and you know, they're not directly caused by climate change. You know, they're not, it's not, these coup leaders aren't coming on TV and saying we're doing this because X, Y, Z. But when you've got things like- We're doing this because we want wind farms. Yeah, yeah. yeah when you've got things like, um, increasingly scarce access to water in those regions, yeah. longer and hotter and more severe droughts, that just increases- and, and rising food prices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, which is a consequence that in part increases, Yeah, insecurity, inequality, and kind of makes people more desperate. And that those are things that all drive conflict. Um, so those are challenges we're gonna to have to tackle as well as tackling you know, the kind of more obvious impacts of climate change, like just you know, the actual weather events themselves. Um, the other thing, and this kind of taps into the Panama Canal thing we talked about earlier, is the impact on, on trade and um, energy production, I think. So Panama Canal is a good example. Drought affects the number of ships that can go through. Yeah. You know, it's quite an obvious one. But also, I think it was last year or the year before last, um, we had the heat wave in Europe and that depleted river levels like the Rhine, for example, in Germany, which is big shipping yeah, routes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and, and also- the ships couldn't transit on it, yeah. it was too low at certain points. Yeah, and uh, the rivers in, some rivers in France were too hot to be used as cooling for, uh, for nuclear power plants. You've got this situation where um, countries that have really good hydroelectric power generation, yeah. um, when water levels in those reservoirs depletes, it reduces their ability to generate hydropower, which kind of, is this frustrating thing where these things that are meant to be renewable and green and like kind of combat climate change end up suffering from it, um, you know, from the hot weather and stuff that happens. Um, so, that's, so that's the kind of main areas I was thinking of. But also this year, we've got another COP, uh, COP29, I think. Yeah, I think so. um, and sort of, well, frustratingly to a lot of people, much like last year's one, which was in Dubai, this one is being held in Azerbaijan, which is a massive oil and gas producer. And the person they've appointed to be president of that um, summit has been someone who's worked in the kind of oil and gas yeah, industry right. historically. And um, yeah, I think that's a, another a trend that should be, you know, people should keep an eye on this. The, the uh, oil producing companies, uh, com not companies, countries, increasingly being involved in these climate summits and trying to kind of sneak their agenda in and, you know, change what's being talked about. Yeah, I, I, obviously I think climate change is something to keep, worth, <laughs> keep an eye on, as yeah. it were, yeah. <laughs> going into 2024. <clears throat> I think just to add to that, maybe a couple of things that I've, you've sort of sparked my interest there. One, I think that, apropos of that stuff about how it affects conflict, I think it really will be interesting to see how it affects food prices. We yeah. talked about this, me and Ben, on the last TLDR podcast on TLDR UK that came out on Tuesday. But so far, global, the global food system has actually held up remarkably well. And there was that drought-induced chaos a couple mm. of years ago. But actually, food prices are down 10% year on year, according to the UN's uh, FAO Food Price Index, um, which, is, which is great news. And actually, that has outperformed analyst expectations. I mean, a lot of people did think that we would see structurally higher food prices with climate change. Um, but, you know, that, that's only a note of optimism if it turns out that actually a sustained period of yeah. climate-related 
uh, interruptions to the global food system mean structurally higher food prices, then I think all the things you talked about, you know, the, the coups, the political instability, all those sort of things, they will become more likely, not just in places like the Sahel, mm. where obviously, you know, higher food prices are a matter of life and death, but even in places like Europe, you know, uh, even in like median income European countries, food just still accounts for such a massive yeah. fraction of total household spending that when you when food prices go up globally, that creates massive inflationary pressures. That's one of the reasons, by the way, if you looked at like EU-wide data after the war in Ukraine, it always looked like the Baltics and the Eastern Europeans had higher inflation. It wasn't because they were actually suffering higher prices across the board, it's because they spend more of their total income on food. Yeah. So a big increase in food just translates to higher overall inflation um, in those countries. So you would expect political instability even in developed countries. Um, the other thing I think, and this is maybe a bit drier, but it's how it affects finance. Um, and basically, the US is already seeing examples of this, but as insurers start trying to take climate change into account, you end up with really difficult situations. So Florida, basically, <coughs> sorry. Yeah, Florida, basically, the home insurance market there the private home insurance market has sort of collapsed because insurers just are not willing to insure certain homes against the risk of damage because they don't know how like the climate is going to affect it and that i mean that would be alone catastrophic for the for like florida property market yeah. and therefore actually quite a significant part of the u.s economy um, and i think i'm right in saying someone should check me up on this that the u.s has introduced like a government-backed fund to insure those properties um but it's one of those where basically Climate change was, was not an issue, financially speaking, in that, you know, but until very, very recently. And then all of a sudden, once insurers cut it off, then it becomes a massive issue. It sort of goes from like zero to 100. And a lot of climate change feels quite gradual, but because of the way it interacts in sort of asymmetric ways with finance and questions about insurance, in some cases, it will sort of, the impact of it, again, on finance, will go from zero to 100 very, very quickly because insurers will all of a sudden just pull out. Um, and you can imagine that happening like after one big yeah. environmental catastrophe, one big hurricane or something, and people attribute it to climate change, and then all of a sudden, insuring properties in those places gets really, really difficult. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is the, the, the what you talked about, about COP. And the, I think you're obviously right to be wary of the sort of newfound influence of not just like oil companies, but like oil exporting states yeah. on like the, the global climate change discourse. Um, but I think what it is showing is something that, to be honest, I've always considered to be sort of inevitable, which is that it was always easier to do green politics when the targets were a long time away mm -hmm. and we could say stuff like we're going to get to net zero by 2050 or whatever it is. But, you know, there was sort of the peddlers hitting the meadows. Is that the right phrase? Like, yeah, um, yeah at the moment. And it, the, it's finally getting a little bit tough and we're having to make real trade-offs. And I think it was always sort of inevitable that in that context, you would see people sort of start to ask like slightly more, I think, frankly, realistic questions about the role that oil and gas are going to have to play in the uh, like in the energy transition generally. Mm. And that's not to say that I think they should be playing a big role. It's just that like you're seeing that sort of equilibrium shift back. We're going, I think, for we're sort of going from the slightly utopian, like we can actually just make it, it'll be really easy, there won't be any costs. And we're sort of, I think, swinging too far the other way. And now oil and gas companies are sort of hijacking it and saying like, no, no, you guys need yeah. the oil and gas. And we, I hope that in the course of 2024, we will find a sort of happy and appropriate medium, which is like both politically sustainable and also environmentally sustainable. Um, but we probably won't, so <laughs> we hope so. Yeah, well, keep an eye on it anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, my unreported, again, enormous topic, the thing to keep an eye on, I think, is, is deglobalization and yet another big one um 
I think the reason I think this is interesting is I think it's one of the very few things that enjoys a global, uh, that is a point of consensus in global politics at the moment. I mean, the one thing that basically all countries can agree on is the need to reshore and onshore and friendshore. You know, the Europeans agree with it. They're trying to reduce strategic dependencies on China. The Americans obviously agree with it. They're trying to basically onshore everything in the world humanly possible. Um, and, and China obviously agrees with it because China has been sort of engineering its economic policies to bring as much manufacturing yeah. onshore for, for 30 years. Um, and you see it in the, the sort of political language used, like the sort of newfound, well, maybe not, it's not entirely new, but the sort of fetishization of like the Green New Deal and manufacturing jobs. And the reason I think we need to keep an eye on it is that so far, actually, it's quite hard to measure because what is the best way of measuring like globalization and the degree of globalization? But so far, deglobalization has only really just started. Like it hasn't really happened in earnest. And if it, if it does happen in earnest in 2024, well, if, it's, if the process properly begins or accelerates, I think it's been interesting to see how politics reacts to that. I basically think that most countries can't afford deglobalization of the kind that politicians are currently talking about. You know, we, we saw how uh, much that politics struggled with inflation this year or the year before really. Um, and I do think that deglobalization, moving either jobs back onshore or only trading with your mates and your sort of like strategically reliable partners, it just will mean higher costs because you're not getting places from the cheapest place available. You're not getting stuff from the cheapest place available. And I think places like America can maybe afford that because I think basically the government in America is planning to subsidize a lot of that stuff and, and maybe that will work. Maybe they can just load it all onto the national debt and they'll be fine. But Europe really can't do that. And one of the big reasons, by the way, is that Europe doesn't have like a domestic energy supply. So we can't, you know, unlike the Americans who are in some sense energy independent, they have a lot of oil and a lot of gas. We, we can't do that. And we still have to trade with places like Saudi Arabia and Qatar for our natural gas if we don't want to do it with Russia, for example. Um, and I do think that as deglobalization accelerates or continues into 2024, I think you'll see some people turn away from it. Some countries realize that they just can't afford it. Um, and I think you'll also see probably a bit of a strain between the US and the EU, um, just because I think that deglobalization means very different things for us. Um, yeah, I think the last thing I'll say is I think there's a really interesting parallel in the whole globalization discourse about what happened. This is such a bend point because it's so needlessly <laughs> historical. But the, between what happened in the 20th century, um, no, even 19th century, uh, for most of the 19th century, there was something that's sometimes called the long peace, which was a period in the 1800s that basically where there, there were less wars than there used to be, sort of from like 1820s through to really the end of the 1800s. And that, uh, that was mostly attributed to the rise of international trade. And perhaps the best proxy for globalization is trade as a percentage of GDP. So if you can, you know, if you basically imagine a world where like countries are entirely autarkic, as in they're like completely walled off from each other, you could still have quite high GDP. But if they weren't trading with each other, the trade would be 0% as percentage of GDP. But once they start trading, that number goes up. Um, and so it's supposed to be a good proxy for how like, globalized the world is. And you can see it if you look on a graph of that, you know, international trade as a percent of GDP, over the 1800s it sort of steadily goes up. And then towards the end of the 1800s it starts going down again. And there are two things that basically people got worried about. One was that the benefits of, and this, I just think there are massive parallels here by the way between what happens today and what yeah. happened then. One, the benefits of globalization weren't being shared equally. 
At the time, it was more because massive capital inflows into poorer countries was actually destabilizing their economies. So poorer countries being like this, is like Latin America, for example, had a massive financial crisis in the 1870s, I think. And the those poor countries saying that like, deglobalization doesn't actually work for us, like you're exploiting us and destabilizing our economies. This time, it's not poor countries, maybe it is to some extent, African countries are complaining that deglobalization doesn't really work, but it's also contingencies within developed economies, mm. you know, like it's, there are a lot of people who, yeah, the classic example is like former manufacturing jobs in the US, people saying we've lost manufacturing yeah. jobs, we've lost middle income jobs, we've lost like good wages. Um, and the other thing that people were complaining about is it created uncomfortable strategic dependencies on certain like minerals and stuff. I mean, like the main energy source then is coal, um, but at the very end of it, oil has taken off. And that again is very similar to what you see today when we're talking, you know, but now we're talking about microchips and the US is saying we're worried about how reliant yeah. we are on China for certain minerals that do with the energy transition, lithium and cobalt processing and stuff like that. Um, and the third way in which is, sorry, there's a lot going on, but the third way that there is a, a really conspicuous parallel is that in the 1800s, international trade, maritime trade, is guaranteed by the British Navy. And, you know, I was going to say we, I don't really know if it counts as we, but we, the British Navy, are basically making sure that international ships can transit yeah. through all of the relevant trade passages in the same way that it's guaranteed by the US Navy today. Um, and worryingly, that period obviously ends with quite a lot of war towards the beginning of the 20th <laughs> yeah. century. But I do think there are really quite conspicuous parallels there. And um, yeah, I, if anyone who wants to, there's a really good book by a guy called James McDonald called something like Pax Britannica. Uh, that's about that. But yeah, so I think we should be looking out for that, seeing as it accelerates, deglobalization accelerates, how do different political entities react to that? And then I guess the second question is like whether it actually happens, you know, like or whether people realise that actually we can't really afford yeah. deglobalisation, especially in an era of climate change when we have other stuff to do, because climate change is expensive and it also stokes inflation for the same reasons you just like described. Um, so those are two just little things to keep an eye on there going into 2024. One, climate change. <laughs> two, deglobalisation. Um, anyway. Let's get on to the last and slightly fluffier bit of the podcast, which is the Global Leader Leaderboard. For any new viewers to the channel, the Global Leader Leaderboard is where every time we do this podcast, we put one person up and one person down, one global leader up and one down, and we do it each. We should just say, because we keep on getting pushback about this, this is not a reflection of our personal politics. Uh, it's more just like from their perspective, who's had a good week. Um, anyway, with that being said, Roy, do you want to start by who is going down? Yes. <laughs> going down for me is uh, Javier Millet, the uh, Argentinian president. Um, so he's going down because he's only been in office for a few, maybe a month. I don't know exactly how long. But um, he in he's introduced all sorts of quite sweeping reforms and decrees as president. One of these was a big labour reform that had hundreds of uh, kind of elements to it. Um, lots of deregulation, as would be expected um, from him. But the uh, yeah, a court in Argentina has struck that law, that, that decree down, effectively saying you can't just, as president, just sign this off and say it's going to happen. It's got to you know, go through Congress, whatever. Um, he's going to appeal, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. But fundamentally, I just think it's the, maybe the first demonstration of uh, the, the challenges that he's going to face as president, because you know when he was elected, there was a lot about just how radical his ideas and proposals were but now we're starting to see the kind of checks on 
presidential power in Argentina that he's going to have to contend with. And also the fact that he doesn't actually have a majority in Congress is the other big challenge for him. So for that reason, I'm moving him down. I'm moving, I'm, well, I'll do mine yeah. down. I'll down. Yeah, I, I see that. The one thing I'd... I mean, it's very Argentinian, by the way, um, that sort of recurring problems in Argentinian political economy. Mm. But the... One thing I'd say is that, like, he's one of those sort of, like, tear everything down, anti-establishment yeah. radicals. And I often think that when people like, I mean, I, I, again, I obviously don't think this is, I think this is what the judiciary should be doing. But when the judiciary resists, like, their directives, it often just sort of re-establishes their anti-establishment credentials. Yeah. You saw something, I think, quite similar with, again, maybe I'm projecting my British experience here, but with the Boris Johnson proroguing Parliament thing, and yeah. obviously illegal in lots of ways, and the Supreme Court later declared it unlawful, but that was sort of the point in that it, it re-established him as a, like, yes. a radical, yeah. someone who gets things done. And I, I imagine that probably similar political dynamics will play out in Millet's case. Yeah. Um, yeah, my person who's going down is Joe Biden, um, who's having a tough time at the moment, uh, but the reason he's specifically going down at the moment is because uh, I think it's called Operation Prosperity, whatever that sort of joint maritime force that the US is leading to deter the Houthis from attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. It's not working. Yeah. Uh, I think today we had yet another shootout between, I think it was British and American forces mm. uh, and some Houthi rebels. Um, and that means that at the moment, the vast majority of shipping is still basically going around Africa via the Cape of Good Hope before going back up to Europe. Uh, and we've talked about this again, but this this should probably will stoke inflation in yeah. Europe um, and is yet more bad news uh, for the European economy. I think it also shines a light on the fact that the American Navy is basically guaranteeing freedom of trade throughout the entire world. And I think that's sort of in lots of ways a good thing, especially for Europeans, because we need someone to do that for us. Um, but it's something that the American public are not comfortable with. And it creates a bit of a domestic political challenge for Biden because you do see quite a lot of commentators being like, well, what, what are we doing here? Like, why are we protecting this? This is something that Trump actually was quite explicit about. He put out a tweet in like 2019 where he was basically said like, what, why don't we let China guarantee freedom? You know, they're the one who needs the mm. oil out of the Persian Gulf. Why don't we let them deal with that? And he quickly walked it back because like, does the US really want China yeah. sorting that out? Um, but yeah, I think it creates a bit of a headache for Biden. Yeah, I think it's interesting because... Um I think the US Navy and all the other countries that are involved in this operation have, they, they keep putting out statements that effectively come across like a, you know, this is your final warning, stop attacking shipping, or we'll have to do something, you know, more significant. And at some point, presumably they will have to do something more significant, whether that's like actual strikes on the Houthis in Yemen, I don't know. But um, so far they haven't seen, like the, the threat and the kind of shooting down of missiles hasn't really stopped the Houthis from actually, you know, engaging in... Um, what they're doing so uh yeah i mean that has the chance of dragging the u.s kind of into a conflict that they don't really want to be involved in yeah it's, it's a bit scary isn't it that with the style of the conflict everyone was like well you can still have regional escalation even if no one wants it yeah and i think we are sort of seeing that slightly play out mm. the one last thing i'll say is i think it's very interesting that there was a recent statement by the prosperity alliance whatever they're called um and the notable exclusion like someone who didn't sign up was france mm. um and i think that's an interesting parallel to the, I think it's 67 or 73, 73 war, um, when France is the only country that doesn't basically side against the, the, Arab, uh, the Arabs because they basically want to continue trading oil. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that, that is, that's a 
yeah, it's a, it's a it's bad news for Biden basically. Mm. Um, more positive news. Who is going up? Uh, it's good news for Emmanuel Macron, um, and I'll, I'll make the case. But I think there are also reasons why you know people could argue against this. But he did his big, long-awaited reshuffle at the start of this week. He's um, sacked Elizabeth Bourne as prime minister and replaced her with Gabriel Attal, who's a very young and popular French politician. He is popular? Yeah, he's one of the most popular in France. Okay. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean like 90% popularity, it's more like 39% yeah. popularity. Um, but he is one of the most Which is amazing for France. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he's one of the most popular. He's previously been serving as education minister and was government spokesperson before that. Um, so I think this is good for Macron because it means he's got a close ally and a popular politician as his prime minister, and he's hoping to use, use this as a big reset for his final few years of the presidency. Um, but I, I do think that we'll have to wait and see to see if this actually works because, um, you know, it's easy to say he's popular now, but once you become prime minister, there's all sorts of reasons why people might start to dislike you. You know, you're much more visible. You have to make much, many more decisions. So we'll have to wait and see on that front. But I do think it is positive for Macron at just kind of, you know, at face value. I'll give him that. He do has a knack of, he does have, he has a knack, he does have a knack of like uh, making his centrism look a bit revolutionary, a bit yes, radical. exactly. Is uh, Atal seen as a like Macron regent, like a possible yeah, successor? Yeah, pretty much. Um, there's a lot of, and his appointment has, you know, fueled that uh, speculation, speculation as him yeah. as a successor. But again, it's very, it's a lot, I think it's easier to kind of take that jump to a presidential run having been a former prime minister but if he's the prime minister going uh, into yeah. 2027 that's a lot harder because you don't have that period of time where people might kind of reflect and think oh actually he was okay yeah um but yeah he's definitely kind of the the next macron if if you if you can say that because he's been close to macron for a while and if he does become president in 2027 i think he will beat Macron's record of being the youngest elected French president. Yeah, he would, didn't so, he? Uh, yeah, How I think old was Macron? Be, I think Macron was 39. 38 39. And Attal would be 37, 38, I think. I've quite, I mean, I'm not jealous. We have a pretty young prime minister, but yeah. you do, it's very conspicuous difference, contrast with the American Absolutely, yeah. Election. There's a good uh, tweet someone did where they said, the combined age of Macron and Attal is still less than Joe Biden's age. Which is actually wild yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. yeah, The Economist did a leader which was born in 42, still good for 24. <laughs> born in 1942. Yeah. This is not a, like yeah. a, this is not a hot take, but that is old. <laughs> Joe Biden is old, yeah. yeah. Hot take. Um, anyway, uh, my person who is going up is Hungarian President Viktor Orban. Prime I'll Minister. put it up in a second. Prime Minister, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, he's going up for two reasons. One is obviously Charles Michel has said that he wants to run in the upcoming European Parliament yeah. elections, which would mean he would have to resign um, as council president uh, quite soon. Mm. No? Um, and by default, Orban would become council president. Uh, the more centrist elements of the EU are desperately trying to like maneuver to make that not possible. A current uh, sort of alternative being considered is Mario Draghi, mm. who's the sort of like permanent <laughs> fix yeah. for whenever something's in trouble in Europe, you just Get throw Mario in. Draghi in there. Um, but you know, if that doesn't happen, it does look difficult and it sort of does, I think it looks a bit dodgy um, mm. to be so sort of like, to basically be a change procedure and process uh, to, to, you know, disadvantage Orban, uh, then he will become, he will become the president. The other reason I think that's worth putting Orban up, is, we don't have him on the board for starters, um, is that I think in certain respects, his politics is becoming more mainstream 
the most obvious example here in, within the EU, the most obvious example here is immigration, obviously, where Orban has always been staunchly anti-immigration, and it's clear that immigration sentiment, sentiment against immigration is accelerating within the EU. But I also think, and it's a bit more nuanced, I think that Orban has always talked about the EU as a civilizational project, not just a sort of economic and, and, and sort of peace project, which is the sort of language you we're more comfortable with in like the UK. Like for example, the Brexit debate was often Brexit debate was framed around economics and the fact that the EU has prevented war yeah. on the European continent for however many years. Um, but he's always talked about it as a sort of civilizational project, which is one of the reasons why he's always resisted Turkish accession to the EU, for example, and it also sort of uh, interacts with his positions on immigration. And I do think that actually quite a lot more European politicians are talking in those terms. Um, I think you see this in Germany, that the Christian Democrats, pre-Merkel, for example, um, and they've sort of, under Mertz, they've sort of returned to their pre-Merkel politics, were very explicit that they saw the European Union as a civilizational project. I think they, Helmut Kohl uses that exact term in 2005, um, when he's talking about the EU and why he doesn't want Turkey to join the EU. Um, and I think Macron also actually, I mean, you don't really normally uh, associate Macron and Orban with each other politically, but Macron also talks about the EU in civilizational terms. And I think you can imagine a world where, you know, going into the late 2020s, in the next couple of years, um, both France and Germany could be led by European politicians who, you know, at least by some definition of civilization, will talk about the EU in civilizational terms. Mm. Um, which would be a sort of political boon for, for Orban. So yeah. I think basically, not only is he possibly becoming council president, it's also that uh, his politics are entering the mainstream uh, within Europe, both on immigration and also like how to, uh, as to how to conceive the European project. Is it civilizational or economic? And I think Orban's take is becoming more mainstream. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, the last thing I was, uh, sorry, cool little tidbit. There was a speech as well where, having mentioned that thing about Helmut Kohl, I just remembered, uh, there's a speech in like 2017 or 19 where Orban describes himself as the successor to Helmut Kohl, <laughs> which is wild. That imagine. is interesting. And, but it's, yeah. it's, you forget, it's, it's touched on so many things, but part of it is that how Merkel is mm. not a classic centre-right Christian Democrat politician. Germany actually does have, or it used to be, the sense, Christian Democrats used to be very different yeah. in Germany. But yeah. it's wild to think of, Orban as Helmut Kohl's successor. <laughs> the reincarnated Helmut Kohl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm just going to move those. It's surprising he hasn't been on the board already, but um, oh, it's a good, a good face to get on there. He goes up here, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There we go. Uh, I think that's... Uh, you need to do Macron, or has he gone up? No, there you go. Uh, he's back to the middle. Thank God. It was a shame to have him down there. Nice. All right. So that is everything for today. Thank you for watching uh, another episode of the TLDR Global Podcast. And join us again next week where we should, if everything goes to plan, have another episode for you. Um, thank you very much. And thank you very much to Roy Taylor thank for you. joining me.